Hello, and welcome to Drawing and Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing and Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. My segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. My new graphic novel, The Breakaways, is out now from first second, and you can order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. I have a master's degree in art education. And I'm a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. My research focuses on comic studies, critical prison studies, and museum studies, and I also make self-published comics. Um, so... (laughs) Welcome to episode 22. In this episode, we are going to be talking about young adult literature or young adult readers, basically. Yeah. It's sort of a topic that I've touched upon almost more in the first couple episodes of Drawing a Dialogue. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be revisiting um, sort of like reading theory and why it's important for young adults to be reading and things like that. I don't really have that much to say. Yeah, in the introduction I, I think this topic. one doesn't need as much um, context as we normally do before we get into it. But I, I think within like comics publishing, at least from my perspective, it's like it seems like a lot like there's a lot of young adult work being made now. So it seemed like a good time to sort of explore that. And as always, I'm very interested in how certain things become genres. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was sort of the approach I took. Yeah, so E is going to give you some history of the mm-hmm. YA genre, and then I'm going to talk about like in YA in schools um, and young adult learners. Uh, yeah, I think we're good. Yeah, right. that's pretty much it. You want to take it All away? Right. <laughs> so I'm going to start out with a book called um, From Romance to Realism by Michael Cart. It was published in 1996 and it's a source that I encountered a lot like as more contemporary sources like we're referencing it and basically in this book Cart sort of goes through the history of literature aimed at what teenage like teenagers Mm-hmm. Uh, like starting back in the like the turn of the century through what would have been contemporary so the 90s uh, getting into it I want to say that like um E yes you said turn of the century but it's starting to actually be you have to tell which century oh <laughs> <laughs> the 1900s the 1900s okay <laughs> I suppose you're right wow <laughs> you know all the young adults are gonna be their turn of the centuries in 2000 Oh, that's uncomfortable. Um, so, um, generally, I'm when I'm talking about young adult in the context that I'm talking about it today, I mean um, literature aimed specifically at people. It's usually like twelve to eighteen years old, like marketed to them, aimed towards them specifically. Mm-hmm. The idea of adolescence as a stage of life, um, and this is all from from romance to realism. The idea of adolescent adolescence rather sort of a stage of life was quote officially sanctioned by psychologist g stanley hall in 1904 but he's actually sort Mm. of an anomaly um because no one talked about it again until like the 40s (laughs) yeah we've mentioned uh hall before yeah i can't remember which episode but we have yeah yeah, so he he sort of came up with the idea of what adolescence was and wrote about it, but then no one else really 
studied that or did anything with it until in the 1920s is when they start to we start to see uh this age group separated from children and adults as like its own distinct time but in the 1940s sort of circa world war ii that's when studies of adolescence emerge and things start to actually be like marketed towards that age group and then in 1958 um the american library association founded a division specifically for quote young adult services so so actually sort of a fairly contemporary idea um i like this quote a lot (laughs) so to quote michael cart Mm. even to try to define the phrase young adult or adolescent literature can be migraine inducing one sympathizes with novelist isabel holland when after pages of trying she finally throws up her hands and declares, I am coming more and more to the conclusion that adolescent literature is whatever any adolescent happens to be reading at any given time. Um, <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. So sort of it's always sort of been a nebulous genre. In 1954, um, librarian Margaret A. Edwards, who is like a incredibly important figure, there's actually an award named after her, quote, reported publisher Little Brown's editorial bemusement on receiving a manuscript by Helen Boylston in the mid-1930s. While it was not a piece of literature, it was an entertaining story which did not fit into any category. It was too mature for children and too uncomplicated for adults. In the end, Little Brown took a chance and published the story under the title Sue Barton, Student Nurse, and the dawn of the modern teenage story came up like thunder. So (laughs) Sue Barton, Student Nurse, is this book that was basically Little Brown decided to published and then gear specifically towards teenagers which was a thing that had not been done Mm. um and actually sue barton student nurse was chosen in a survey by librarians as the quote most consistently popular book among teenagers 11 years later in 1947 oh wow yeah this started sort of a subgenre of what are called career books um so these were books geared towards teenagers uh that Basically, the main character had some sort of career, right? So there's a lot of student nurse books. Um, I think journalism was another one. There's like basically any career you can think of. Mm. In 1942, quote, a new field of writing for teenagers became established with the publication of 17th Summer by Maureen Dolly, uh, which it was actually published when uh, Dolly was only 21. Mm. And it was autobiographical in nature. It was fiction, but she like was writing about her own experiences. And uh, it was about like sort of first love. And it actually was in the first person. And Cart wrote that the use of the first person voice would thereafter become one of the most enduring characteristics of the young adult novel. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, that's like, oh, yeah, that's, that is a popular mm-hmm. voice for uh, teen books. Mm-hmm. So, but this is all still like, these are books that are being marketed towards teenagers, but they're not being called like young adults, right? Like, this is still like pre young adult okay. genre. But following 17th Summer, romance novels sort of became the dominant mode, hence from romance to realism being the book title. And Cart wrote, uh, quote, the resurgence in the popularity of the romance came after a decade of hard-hitting, realistic, and, more often than not, single-problem novels. No wonder young readers were ready for the irresistible lure of escapist romance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the idea was that, basically, single-problem novels is sort of what it sounds like, where the, the plot was like, there is a problem that needs to be solved, and then by the end it's solved, and you move on. Um... And romance, which had been popular sort of during pulp, came back in for these teenage books because it was like, oh, we want to read about like a lot of it was like 
oh, are they going to go to the prom together? Or like the first kid, like, you know, like very cute, schmaltzy, heterosexual uh, romance um, is the dominant genre for uh, teen books until the 60s. Um, and so uh, here's a quote. Psychologist B. Porisha Kovac, with dry understatement, calls the stormy 60s a decade when youth activities were prominent <laughs> and says it is one of two eras of particular significance in the evolution of modern ideas of adolescent development, with the other being the 1920s when adolescence sort of became more of a codified stage. So Cart, like most scholars that I've read, identifies uh, a book called The Outsiders as the start of what we think of as YA literature. So The Outsiders was written by S.E. Hinton. It was published in 1967. S.E. Hinton was 18 when it was published, so she wrote it when she was a teenager. Um, She started writing it when she was 15, 16. And it was really different (laughs) from every... Mm -hmm. It was very realistic. It's uh, still one of the most popular books that gets taught to teenagers. I'm going to talk more about it in a second, but I want to finish up with Cart. Um, he, he gets kind of dismissive of the outsiders. He spends like a lot of pages sort of talking about how like, oh, it gets carded as a realistic book, but it's still very sentimental and offers, Mm -hmm. um, Catcher in the Rye as a quote, more viable model for the modern young adult novel. But the way he tends to write, Essie Hinton was a, is a woman and the way he tends to write about female authors is very sexist. So I kind of feel like... Oh, dear. He went to, like, a lot of effort to undermine S.E. Hinton's importance to make Catcher in the Rye, like, more because Catcher in the Rye is written by a dude. So, um... Boring. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to move on from him, (laughs) but it's important to know that uh, the YA sort of founds with S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders and her the fact that she was a teenager when she wrote it, right? Yeah. So I'm going to move on to a source called Institutionalizing the Outsiders, YA Literature, Social Class, and the American Faith in Education from 2007 by um, Eric L. Tribunella. So he sort of talks about, um, quote, the young adult or teenager for whom the book was imagined has always been related intimately to economic and consumer trends. The first recorded use of the word teenager, at first hyphenated before settling into its more common usage, was 1941. Thomas Hines notes the connection between the rise of the teenager and market forces, um, quoting Hines, Because youth culture is, in essence, a series of decisions about personal appearance and entertainment, it can scarcely exist if its members don't have the money they can spend as they see fit in ways wholly distinct from how their parents would spend it. Hines suggests that in the economy of World War II and the post-war period, teenagers increasingly took the more marginal jobs left by adults moving into better-paying, more skilled work. This provided teenagers with some of their own disposable income, although not enough to allow them to be financially independent or to start their own families. This minimal disposable income would be a necessary condition for the invention of the teenager, who was, from the beginning, constructed as a consumer. The 1940s saw not only the coinage of the word teenager, but also the invention of the new market, as clothes, magazines, and music came to be developed, packaged, and sold specifically for the teenager. It would take another two decades for the young adult literature market to crystallize fully, which is when, in the 1960s, sort of outsiders in these books sort of start getting released. And it's interesting how um, it's so market-driven. Even the first one, when instead of, before it was YA, it was little brown just sort of taking a chance on a book it's not like these stories didn't exist 
beforehand. It's just like who was publishing them yeah. and if it was marketable, which is interesting. Yeah, because there are books about people in that age group that exist prior to uh, the student nurse books, right? Right. But they just they weren't being marketed towards this age range. So they don't, they aren't considered YA. So it's like a completely mm. like fabricated genre that exists because they w- developed this demographic to market towards basically of the, that age range. Yeah. And it's not like, um, because there's still like a developmental step. If you're thinking educationally, there's still a developmental step yeah. there. And I mean, I don't know when the world became recognized, started to recognize like child development world started to recognize when, uh, that young adult was its own developmental stage. 50s, 60s. It, it, is that also when the psychologists started to realize that that was separate? Yeah, psychologists started doing studies on like adolescents specifically in the 40s. Okay, because there was Hall yeah. in 1904 who recognized it was different. He was a psychologist, right? Yeah, he was just like the only person who did anything about it, and then no one t- touched it again for like 40 years. Okay. <laughs> All right, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so quoting again from Tribunella to sort of expand on that. From their inception then, the teenager and teen culture were inextricably linked to the economy and social class. And so perhaps it is fitting that the 1967 publication of Hinton's The Outsiders, with its depictions of class conflict and violence in the lives of a small group of urban teenagers, has come to be seen as marking the maturity of YA literature. Michael Cart concurs with other critics in dismissing most fiction read by young adults, even if not specifically written for them during the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, as what would now be called genre literature, like romances or mysteries. Um, That's really interesting. Like, like pulp yeah. was for young adults, and I think everyone knew that. It just wasn't a specifically called young adults. Yeah, adult. right? Yeah. It? Okay. Um, Tribunella goes on, um, responding to what uh, S.E. Hinton saw as the lack of realism in literature for young adults and its failure to grapple honestly with the difficulties faced by young people, Hinton attempted to write a novel she thought would better represent the experiences of teenagers. That meant confronting directly some of the problems of adolescence, violence, conflict with parents and other youths, and feelings of alienation and isolation. In other words, focusing on problems and how to deal with them was adopted as a strategy both to produce the appearance of realism as though realism were synonymous with turmoil and to distance YA fiction from the romantic and benign writing of the preceding three decades. Since the teenager was, to a certain extent, a product of economic forces, we might not be surprised that in this landmark publication, one of these key problems is precisely the class status of its teenage protagonists. Um... So Hinton's book, The Outsider, sort of marks this turn that I was talking about away from the romances, which were sort of like the big popular ones, right? Into um, mm-hmm. pro- like novels that were they're sometimes called like problem novels. But basically the idea is that the characters have a set of problems that they're trying to resolve and that problems are the things that sort of cause it to be read as realistic right so like uh class violence Mm -hmm. and so this sort of becomes the dominant mode and um i've seen if we're going sort of like off the chronology of like what scholars sort of pick up to write about it's like it's Uh like the outsiders and then go ask alice which was published in 1971 i've never heard of go ask Alice. really you never read it 
I read it. No. Um, oh, I was, I was, I had like a very ridiculous education in high school because like I was always in the advanced English classes, which meant I just read like whatever my advanced English teacher wanted to us to read. And I never read like sort of the classic ones you think a high schooler should read. Like I read like King Lear and stuff. Oh, like I never read I mean, like I, Death of a Salesman or whatever. I don't, I don't know. I, I think I just read this on my own. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't think this was ever assigned to me. That's fair. Yeah. Um, Go Ask Alice was published in 1971, and from Wikipedia, it is a fiction book about a teenage girl who develops a drug habit at age 15 and runs away from home on a journey of self-destructive escapism. Attributed to Anonymous, the book oh. is in diary form and was originally presented as being the edited real diary of the unnamed teenage protagonist. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that sort of... Sounds very <laughs> hippie era. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So that, I guess, I, I don't want to do, like, an in-depth timeline. I'm just trying to, like, sort of show that, like, that's the direction that these go into, the pr the problem novels. So, um, is, like, the word that mm -hmm. people use, right? So it's, like, the outsider sort of brings us past. So there's single problem novels, which were, like, the very basic, like, am I going to get asked to prom? And then problem novels are, are also called um, social problem novels, right? So the idea is that they focus on... Uh, multiple problems that relate to like bigger social things which are then sort of perceived as realism right so all of these get categorized as being realistic books about the teen experience and then mm. realism for a very long time was the dominant mode of young adult literature like you want to like authentically represent what teenagers are going through until i until like harry potter <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone was like oh fantasy's okay i guess pretty much really pretty much. i mean timeline? i'm sure it's more complicated than that but that's like pretty much the timeline that i saw <laughs> was that everyone was just kind of like like the realism oh stuff and then like the realism stuff obviously can get like real dark and then obviously there were fantasy books yeah. being written that young adults were reading but i guess they didn't like change the landscape the way that people consider harry potter did so <laughs> well okay <laughs> so yeah that's sort of the um the thing but so i'm gonna i want to talk about two more things so that's basically the foundation right um and i want to talk about um from this book critical foundations and young adult literature by antero garcia um from 2013 this uh nugget that i thought was interesting when we're considering ya as a genre right and not like teenagers as people Okay. Quote, a 2012 <laughs> quote, a 2012 market research report, Understanding the Children's Book Consumer in the Digital Age, uh, by Bowker Market Research, found that the majority of YA consumers are 18 years or older. Though some of this demographic may be purchasing YA titles for friends, siblings, and children, the report clarifies that 78% of this demographic are typically buying these books for their own reading. Again, in isolation, the statistic can be led towards incorrect inference about book buyers. One could assume that book readers that only recently became adults or hit their 20s are continuing to draw on their youthful interests and are reading the YA books that they grew up with. This isn't the case. The Bowker report indicates that the biggest group of adults buying YA books in the 21st century are between the ages of 30 and 44. 
This demographic accounts for nearly 30% of mm. all YA book buying, which is staggering. For a genre that, at least a name, claims to be for and about young adults, that much of its primary audience is older has significant ramifications on the future of the genre. Does it? What's What are the I significant think, ramifications? Well, I yeah, I don't know if I agree with that necessarily, but I think what uh, Garcia is getting at is the idea that like they're being marketed towards teenagers, but being like the publishers know that adults are reading them, so they're also like like they're being written for adults, but marketed towards teenagers. Mm-hmm. But like, okay, yeah, yeah. I wonder what. I mean, I'm gonna talk about like educationally, but like I wonder how many people who consider themselves readers are like really picking up like difficult literature books you know like yeah if if you're just reading for pleasure do you want it to be like really difficult to get through yeah. or do you just want to have a good time not that necessarily young adult i i mean i'm assuming that young adult literature is gonna not have such right. complicated words like um be be like you know have like lower lexiconal words so it's just yeah like it's interesting to read and dramatic yeah it's right? interesting to me for a lot of reasons <laughs> because one i think it points really well to the fact that like ya as a genre is like wholly constructed <laughs> like teenagers read like anything um Oh, yeah. Anything, but this is a specific, like, labeled on paper genre that exists for, like, theoretically this age group, right? Like, you market your book as YA versus romance or whatever. And also, I think it's interesting because, like, there are, I mean, there are genres of books that aren't classical, like, aren't literature that also aren't YA, right? Like, I would, I wish I had, like, the numbers to compare to, like, percentage of people that read, like, also romances or detective novels or paperbacks. You know what I mean? I mean, romances are, like, one of the most popular oh, yeah. money-making Romances are great. I'm very pro-romance. We should do an episode yeah. on romances. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm pro-romance as well. I think that was one of the first books <laughs> I mentioned in What Are You Reading? They're lovely. Anyway, I just thought that was like an interesting note about the act, the true demographic when we're talking about YA is that it's not literally just teenagers. It's often a lot of adults. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think that there's like so many things that you can read into that. Yeah. So I'm just presenting that for our consideration. And then I wanted to talk very, very briefly about comics and YA. Not a lot of writing that I could find about like the start of the YA genre in comics specifically and even like about sort of the cont- looking at sort of contemporary trends with that um there's some good writing about like specific YA books and what they do and of course a lot of really good writing on like educational applications mm. um but not a lot of like the history stuff which I'm like oh but I want to know about the genre <laughs> I know I mean that's it's. I mean, the the comics criticism and comics journalism is a yeah. very yeah. S- small <laughs> so <group of> people, <laughs> and we are very thankful yeah, to yeah. them. <laughs> so, um, but I th- I felt like it would be. I mean, my pet theory is that like it's got to be sort of interesting to untangle because comics were originally for kids, more or less, right? Like the majority of readers were kids, and then comics code stuff happened and demographics changed and everyone's sort of like if you follow the sort of canonized um chronology in comic studies it sort of is like 
uh the the shift was towards like adult quote comics for adults right to like legitimize comics um and then right you get into like alternatives and graphic novels right. and people like only talk about graphic novels as being aimed towards adult although like a graphic novels like uh i'm thinking about like fun home and mouse and persepolis and so sort of those like big graphic novel titles are taught to teenagers all the time um but they're not ya yes so yes. that's what's like interesting to me is that line between like okay when does it actually become like this is a ya title um oh, interesting so i'm gonna read a quote from middle grade storytelling goes graphic by uh bridget alverson uh, in 2018 uh that was written for publishers weekly um because she talks a little bit in this about the history of sort of graphic novel publishing for young adults for middle grade but in the age range I'm just going to say, so middle grade publishing wise is considered eight years old to 12 years old. And then young, teen, young adult yeah. is the teenage years. So from 13 up. So middle grade is like a very small genre and it totally, it, there's no, it makes sense to smush it in with. Okay. Young adult. <laughs> I think it's fine. Um. <laughs> Um, so, quote, the manga boom of the late 1990s and early 2000s created a new format and a new audience for comics. Published as 200-page graphic novels and distributed mainly in bookstores, uh, particularly Walden Books, which were mostly located in malls and the now-defunct Borders chain, manga was accessible to young readers and girls in particular in the same way that monthly comics had been to earlier generations. And I thought that was really interesting because I hadn't thought about the manga boom in connection to like the emergence of YA as a genre in comics but it totally makes sense because like oh. Tokyo Pop and you know sort of that era was definitely like people point to it a lot as like sort of when especially like young girls teen girls got into like reading a lot of comics We've talked about it a lot. Yeah, it was a big part of my thesis. I remember sitting on the floor of the Barnes and Noble reading manga. Um so then uh, Alverson goes on to note that in 2005, um, Terry Nantier founds uh, Paper Cuts, with a Z at the end, very 2000, a, quote, children's graphic novel publishing house with Jim Salikrup. They did these um, Nancy Drew and Hardy Boy adaptations that used, like, a manga style to, like, appeal, basically. And that also was interesting to me because I do... I don't think I ever mm. read those ones specifically, but I do remember that like era where everyone was like Western or American publishers were doing these sort of like thick books that were in the style, like borrowing manga style to like definitely like appeal to the youth. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, manga style in huge quotations because yeah, of course. You, they were assuming manga styles literally just like the way yeah. you draw a character's <laughs> head, which is like completely rude to the actual like artistry of japanese cartoonists <laughs> so i'm it's a rough it's a rough era <laughs> um i touched upon it yeah i touched upon it in um our episode yeah yeah um in the that classic episode the episode 12 episode 12 cool yes um, also in 2005, um, Scholastic Begins Graphics, spelled with an X, again, very 2000s. Um, Scholastics is a children's book publisher, so that was their graphic novel imprint. And I thought this was interesting. Uh, gr Scholastic's first graphic novel acquisition was um, Jeff Smith's Bone series. Mm -hmm. 
And then, of course, I would be remiss if I did not mention uh, <laughs> Raina Telgemeier's Smile, quotes an autobiographical work about child dental misadventures, was the first true middle grade graphic novel to become a massive bestseller. It stayed on the New York, paper- New York Times paperback graphic novel chart for 240 weeks and would probably still be there if the Times hadn't discontinued its graphic novel charts. Probably because of Raina. Yeah, likely because. <laughs> likely because. Um, and Smile was published in uh, 2010. So uh, cool. in comics, like the concept of YA literature is actually pretty young, despite the fact that comics have theoretically always kind of been YA, or like at least like more children oriented. Yeah. It, there's also the difference between um, graphic novels, publishing books. Yes which was a manga boom thing to just, instead of doing collections of the floppies, the manga boom made audiences want the entire book published all at once rather than that monthly subscription model. And so I think that also it can be attributed to like that literally like publishing graphic novels. I know we, um, like to talk about comics as more of an umbrella term, but I think really that kind of that thicker book also changed it and also made it so they can go into like school libraries and stuff. Yeah, and just yeah. Made it more like a book rather than like a comic, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's a huge part of it. And I think it is like really interesting to sort of, the thing that's like the most interesting to me is just when does something actually get that line on the dust jacket that says like, this is YA literature, right? Yeah, and I wonder how much of that actually has to do with the book format, right? Too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I just came up with this right now, so <laughs> <laughs> no, it's interesting. My theory. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is what I brought to the table today. I wanted to keep it nice and breezy, awesome for summer. So thanks so much, E. It's so awesome to know um, sort of the history of YA literature. Now I'm sort of going to pivot to YA readers and like adolescent readers from more of an educational perspective. Yay! So I have like a few categories in my like outline in my plan right now, and I could not figure out a good order for them. So (laughs) (laughs) I think this is a working order. I'm just letting you know. I tried to make it smooth, but it might jump around. And uh, honestly, that is sort of our drawing a dialogue vibe. I feel like nothing is linear. Everything is sort of um, a conglomeration, right? Yeah. So I'm going to start out with some statistics just so we know who we're talking about, right? Yeah. So this is from Psychology of Popular Media Culture. Um, so it's titled Trends in U.S. Adolescence Media Use from 1976 to 2016, The Rise of Digital Media, The Decline of TV, and The Near Demise of Print. Um, so that's the title. I mean, it's definitely a title to make you uh, scared. <laughs> um, sure. Um, so it's by Twenge, Martin, and Spitzberg. Um, it just was first published in 2018. So this is nice and recent. In fact, this is, it's nice to revisit this stuff because I've talked about adolescent readers in like one of the first or second episodes. So it's nice to come back to it a couple of years later because we got some updated statistics. Yeah. So studies have produced conflicting uh, results about whether digital media, the internet, texting, social media, and gaming displace or complement use of older legacy media, print media such as books, magazines, and newspapers, TV, and movies. 
in this paper, it examines the generational slash time periods trends in media use in nationally representative models of 8th, 10th, and 12th graders in the United States from 1976 to 2016. And it was like a million people who were involved in the study and 51% were female. They don't explain what the other percentage was, but... (laughs) I guess we're just supposed to assume. I suppose we're just supposed to assume. Um, Digital media use has increased considerably with the average 12th grader in 2016, spending more than twice as much time online as in 2006. And with time online, texting and on social media totaling to about six hours a day by 2016. Whereas only half of 12th graders visited social media sites every day in 2008, 82% did by 2016. I think that's all stuff that we probably know, but I think it's really important to actually know statistics. So yeah. from 2006 to 2016, I mean, it just like it grew tremendously. It's twice as much time online, six hours total on social media or online in some capacity. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure that includes online games and things like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think I, honestly, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I spend probably six hours a day online because you're doing all sorts of stuff. It's not just like one single thing that you're doing on it. Yeah. At the same time, iGen, they call it iGen, which is interesting, like the iTunes generation or something like that, like an oh, iPod generation. I don't know iGen. if I like that. I've never heard of that before. Right. It's like Generation X or something or Z right now. Yeah, it's Gen I Z. Because we're, we're, yeah. So they call it iGen adolescence. Anyway, um, at the same time, iGen adolescents in the 2010s spent significantly less time on print media, TV, or movies compared with adolescents in previous decades. The percentage of 12th graders who read a book or a magazine every day declined from 60% in in the late 70s to 16% by 2016, Mm. and 8th graders spent almost an hour less time watching TV in 2016 compared to the early 1990s. Mm. Trends are fairly uniform across gender, race slash ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. The rapid adoption of digital media since the 2000s has displaced and con- the consumption of legacy media. Mm. Um, and uh, part of this is attributed to just a competition for attention, right? So if you're going to be online for six hours, you're not going to have all... The- There's only so many hours in the day to watch a movie or something like that. So yeah. it makes sense to me. So competition for attention is something that I think is key here, right? That idea. So why read? <laughs> Why do we want older children and young adolescents to read? So this is a literacy as a leisure activity, free time preferences for older children and young adolescents by Nipple, Dorothy, and Larson from 2005. Uh, literacy is important to the development of language because it helps young adults acquire new vocabulary. Mm. Rather than focusing on learning how to read by young adulthood, teenagers are meant to be using reading as a tool for gaining knowledge. This is a key idea to most teachers, to English language learners. I think it's around second grade to third grade. You're supposed to move from learning how to read to reading in order to learn. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's like lexical development. Um, By this time, decoding and fluency skills have improved in most students to the point where reading has become a tool for gaining new knowledge, which includes the learning of words that occur in textbooks for older students and adolescents. Okay. Increased word knowledge leads to stronger reading comprehension, which in turn leads to a further lexical expansion. Thus, the ongoing 
reciprocal relationship between language and literacy development in youth. So I think this is important. So a lot of these ideas they attribute, this paper is from 2005. Okay. But this introduction to why reading is important to adolescents is from 1983. Okay. Right. So I think what we need to do is like start to want to expand what we consider reading is and what we consider reading, why reading is important, right? Yeah. So it's sort of like this idea that reading is important so kids learn vocabulary, this obsession with learning new words. I- I'm just going to say, I think it's a little outdated, right? Okay. Uh, I just wanted to present that older idea of why we want kids to be reading, right? Yeah. So why aren't they reading, right? We already talked about the possibilities of um, sort of demand on attention. So why aren't they reading what we expect them to be reading, which is like literature, right? Yeah. I'm I'm going to go into new technologies and stuff soon. Um, okay. Because I don't want to interrupt you, but I am curious what counts as reading in this. So uh, why aren't kids reading books, right? Yeah. So I gave you some statistics, right? The sort of the legacy media is sort of going out of style. This is from an article titled, I Just Find It Boring. (laughs) (laughs) Findings from an Effective Adolescent Reading Intervention from 2017. Um, This is from Cockroft and Atkinson, which is, uh, and it's also from the UK, which I think is important to know when we're uh, exiting the North American uh, perspective. So reading engagement and motivation are strong indicators of reading performance. Motivation can decline in adolescence, right? So, like, um, <laughs> d- d- kids just don't want to. <laughs> yes. Oh, right? yes, I have encountered um, that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love, I love when we're talking about these things as like educators, as if we we need to write an entire paper about kids not wanting to do something and how kids learn better when they want to do something it's just true but (laughs) they don't like it when we make them do things i can't imagine why (laughs) (laughs) given the central importance of motivation to learning it is logically a crucial factor in learning to read with evidence indicating that students with lower motivation usually demonstrate poor performance in reading activities, however they measure reading activities. Um, another paper noted that struggling readers may have low reading self-efficacy, be extrinsically rather than intrinsically motivated, aka driven by um, grades rather than enjoyment, and demonstrate lessened reading effort, right? They don't want to read if they're only reading for a grade. It's less interesting to them. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to sort of move into, again, these are my categories. I don't know what a good order for them was. But I'm going to start to move into sort of uh, the future possibilities of YA, right? How can we actually get kids to want to read? Okay. Yeah. So what's the future going to look like for these books? This is part of why I wanted to talk about YA literature, why this this idea topic came up in my head, is because recently the Kids and Family Reading Report from Scholastic was published. Okay. Um, I think it's the seventh um, reading report that they've done. Um, It's really important when we talk about reading reports like this that if a company is behind it that is not unbiased research from an unbiased researcher. Yeah. Um, So there's a very big difference between when a company does this kind of thing versus when a peer-reviewed journal does it. Not saying peer-reviewed journals 
aren't biased in their own ways. But I just wanted to keep that um, in mind. But something that this reading report from Scholastic really points out is that diversity is really important for readers. So first they define what diversity in children's book is, right? So diversity in children's books has a broad meaning and is highly inclusive. For a majority of parents and near majority of kids, diversity in books includes people and experiences different from their own, various cultures, customs, and religions, and various settings and living situations. About half of kids ages 9 to 17, so the young adult era, and uh, parents agree that I wish there were more books available that include diversity. Mm. Among kids and parents who agree that diversity in children's books is important, those percentages rise to 76% of kids and 69% of parents. So these are the uh, statistics of people who believe that they wish there were more books with diversity, right? Yeah. To quote Black and Hispanic Families overall have the strongest views on the importance of and the need for books with diversity. So both kids ages uh, 12 to 17, so again, that young adult area, um, and parents were more likely today than they were in 2016 to want books with diverse storylines, characters, or settings. The characters both kids and parents look for in children's books signify the powerful role characters can play in a young reader's life. The top three most wanted types of characters among kids are those who can be role models, who face challenges and overcome them, and those who are quote-unquote similar to me. Parents overwhelmingly agree, 95%, that characters in books can help foster the qualities they value for their children. And the data suggests that parents are uh, placing a greater value focus on character building. The percentage of parents who want more from characters is on the rise. Hmm. So sort of continuing on with the idea of wanting to include uh, diversity in reading and YA and why that would be important. Yeah. This is an article titled Scoring with Reading from 2007. Uh-huh. To engage adolescent African-American males in reading, books must reflect their lives, say author Walter Dean Myers and educator Alfred Tatum. Um, one of the things that brings young people to books is seeing something that they recognize in their own lives, says Myers. If there is nothing in the books that they read that reflects their lives, they see reading only as opportunity to fail. I feel that I have a kinship with many teenagers and young people that I write about and try to reflect that in my books. We are making some progress in providing literature is more reflective of cultural diversity, but we still have far to go, Myers adds. We would like to see more young African-American authors emerge. I only have one point of view, he says. There should be lots of books with the, about the African-American experience. Tatum says teachers and parents need to find texts that speak to teenage African-American males. He identifies uh, five key backdrops that draw readers to books. One, personal. Two, economic. Three, social, culture, or gender. Four, community. And five, national. Okay. Tatum adds that the right books can help readers develop a positive psyche, provide modern day awareness of the real world, and offer a roadmap in terms of who the young readers are and what they can become. Texts for African American males have to be enabling, he says. Enabling texts allow the reader to think, be, or do differently as a result of what they read. Mm. Um, it's a little <laughs> clinical, um, yeah, from, yeah. but it's from 2007. So Okay. Um, so hopefully the landscape has changed a bit, but I think it's just really good to recognize um, that it is really important to, for books to reflect their readers and it is um, just going to make people more interested in reading if they don't feel like it's like a, if they could feel like they can relate to it, right? Yeah, yeah. And then also I found an article on more future possibilities and helping uh, students read is also um, 
the importance of uh, social reading, like reading in, in a communal way, right? So this is from the article, Reimagining uh, Reader Response in Middle and Secondary Schools, Early Adolescent Girls' Critical and Communal Reading Responses to the Young Adult Novel Speak by Park um, from 2012. So the article is based off of a year-long qualitative study in an urban middle school after-school book club where reading is critical and a communal practice. Um, So the book club participants uh, shared that they valued being part of reading and discussion communities, and they were more likely to read texts that they can generate conversations among peers. According to one of the students, um, if you read alone, you don't really get to talk about it with anybody. Mm. But you get to talk about the events that happened in it, and it makes you remember the book more. And it makes the book more special in ways. Another student says, um, once I'm able to talk about talk to other people about it, I like it more. Even in the text, its identity and significant changes once it is read together and discussed among other readers. A seventh grader shared her reason for joining the after-school book club. I hate it when um, researchers quote teenagers exactly because it makes them sound silly, but I think I don't think it's really fair. Yeah, yeah. So this uh, student says, because when I'm reading something, like also you do this in movies, when you watch TV or do anything like read, you have to have somebody around you to like laugh and to like tell them about it and laugh about what's in the book. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's not like a really fair. She, that's not a very fair quote. But yeah, not, you want she's right. to be able to laugh. And- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there's a reason people You want people around so you can talk about it. Yeah, yeah. there's a reason people live tweet when um, they watch things or read things cuz we like in sharing our experiences. Yeah. We're social. Yeah, and it it makes the text more pleasurable, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, it's social. And then so another article from 2014 by Ivy titled The Social Side of Engaged Reading for Young Adolescents. It sort of talks about how in an eighth grade classroom that implemented free reading, which didn't require all students to read the same book, mm. which um, also statistically, I'm just sort of going off on a tangent. Um, but I've, I've heard that being able to choice, free choice, choose what you want to read, um, makes students want to read more if they chose their own book rather than um, just an assigned book. Shocking. Which makes sense if you think about it for 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> Uh, so not only does being socially engaged help students want to read more, but they also become more social with new people, right? Yeah. Um, because the compulsion to talk about books is often so great, students will talk to peers outside of their own social groups. A student observed at in the at the end of eighth grade, people are less in cliques and groups than we were in last year. So I think it's a step closer to actually being united. Oh. Students are reported making new friends over books. So um, not only do books, it's like you read more if you're social, you actually start to branch out of your social groups and make new friends just to talk about the books, right? I think that's yeah, really great. And I really think cool. that's something that needs to be happening in adolescence for sure. Yeah. So I talked about reading and I think mostly we focused on reading books, right? Yes. So now I'm going to start to think about how, like, let's rethink our definition of YA. Yeah. Right? Like, how can we bring in the six hours that students spend online? How can we bring that in to when we're thinking about reading, right? Mm -hmm. So this is from the article um, by Kendall from 2008, Playing and Resisting, Rethinking Young People's Reading Cultures. Um, This is also from the UK. This paper talks about the misrepresentation of young adult readers as quote-unquote passive and uncritical readers who consume too much lowbrow texts. The reality of their reading lives is far more subtle, 
complex and dynamic. Mm-hmm. So to quote, there's a sharp divide between the culture of the school and the students who are stakeholders in the school. Students may choose to reject the official curriculum until we bridge the gap by tapping the multiple literacies in adolescent lives. We still continue to see adolescents develop a disinterested cognitive view of in-school literacy functions and a more enthusiastic view of out-of-school discourse functions. Mm. This leads to into a further critical issue about how we can think through the process of reading. So now I'm going to move into new technologies, right? Uh, let's rethink what we consider reading. Right. So let's expand our concept of reading. This is an article by just like a lot of people like Alverman, Hagood, <laughs> Uh, Hiran Hruby, uh, Hughes, Williams, and Yoon. Um, this is titled Telling Themselves Who They Are What One Out of School Time Study Revealed About Underachieving Readers 2007. Okay. For one, it would appear that regardless of the label, struggling reader, media club youth. Okay, so this is the focusing on like uh, some kids who are part of media club. Right? Okay. Um, who kept daily logs of how they spent out of school time did not report activities one would expect of underachievers, quote unquote, again. Okay. (laughs) They voluntarily engaged in a wide range of literacy practices, including but not limited to searching the internet, reading directions, song lyrics, and billboard advertisements, and solving problems that did not require print literacy, such as the semiotic domain known as video gaming. Mm. In What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning and Literacy, G in 2003 argues persuasively that in the modern world, print literacy is not enough. People need to be literate in a great variety of different semiotic domains. If these domains involve print, people need the print bits, of course. Mm -hmm. However, the vast majority of domains involve semiotic, as in symbolic, representational resources besides print, and some don't involve print as a resource at all. Mm. Furthermore, and more important, people need to be able to learn to be literate in a new semiotic domains throughout their lives. If our modern, global, high-tech and science-driven world does anything. It certainly gives rise to a new semiotic domains and transform old ones to an even faster rate, right? Yeah. Do you get what I'm getting at? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... Just to, as a reminder, uh, what is semiotic, right? Yeah. E, do you want to define semiotic for us? I don't know if I'll do a good job, um, but essentially semiotics are like... When, like, um, a concept is represented through, like, a symbol, which can be, like, a word or an image or really anything. Awesome. Thank you so much. So, um, this article was talking about how they were studying the quote-unquote struggling readers. Yeah. But how these kids were doing all sorts of literacy practices, they were just in the realm of sort of a wider semiotic concept of what literacy could be. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to move into sort of talking about new technologies and how to engage new tech into YA reading. How can we combine these things, right? So this is from Graphic Novels, Web Comics, and Creator Blogs. 
Examining Product and Process from 2011 by Carter. So here's a little summary. This article examines the intersections among young adult texts, particularly graphic novels and web comics, the internet, and multiple literacies slash types of reading to illustrate how embracing these trends can help educators teach and process and product when considering young adult texts. The use of technologies often creates new social spaces, like we talked about how social reading is really important, and intersections when teachers and or students integrate them into their school and everyday life worlds. The result can be that education becomes less monospatial and more multispatial, more a hybrid construct or collections thereof, Mm -hmm. rather than homogenous. I thought you would love that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Something similar is happening with young adult literature, which is exploring spaces beyond the written page even as its writers find ways to bring more those spaces into the traditional framing of the cardstock-bound stacks of paper scattered with print. Young adult writers have been exploring integrating visual and print sign systems for years, and new spaces and technologies have exacerbated their effort towards access, promotion, and communication with their reading public. So what this is sort of saying is how YA authors are using the internet and blogs and YouTube and all that stuff, and even just including images in their books, such as graphic novels, to start to engage sort of this expansive concept of what literacy can be so it's not monospatial, becomes multispatial, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is, I think, what, yeah, what we really should be looking at. Yeah, right? for sure. So um, just sort of talking about comics, like why comics? We've talked about this a lot, but I just always want to keep talking about it. Yeah. Um, so teaching multimodal literacy through reading and writing with graphic novels. This is from Cook and Kirchhoff. It's from 2017. This article sort of goes into why graphic novels are great for classrooms and a recent scholarship to support it. Okay. So here's all the scholarship. We've talked about this a thousand times, but I'm just going to sort of <laughs> rattle it off. There are literacy, literary scholars examining how complex literary themes, sophisticated metaphors, dynamic characterization, and commentary on social, cultural, and historical issues can be found in a wide array of graphic novels. There are pedagogies who suggest graphic narratives are an excellent gateway to literacy that is an avenue for reluctant re- readers to engage with reading. And more recently, other scholars have become increasingly interested in the multimodality of comics. Most comics, particularly mainstream comics, consistently make use of images juxtaposed with texts, usually in the form of speech balloons, captions, or print sound effects. Uh, Print comics are sites of complex multimodality in work, as comics are comprised not only of linguistic elements, but are some combination of visual audio as represented visually, um, gestural and spatial elements. Readers of comics are simultaneously making meaning of a variety of elements, ranging from the words to layout to panel composition to body language. All that good stuff. I just thought that was such a good um, summation. So that's only from 2017, right? That's like why, when we were working on drawing a dialogue. Yeah. Theme, right? <laughs> There's so much scholarship on comics now for why it's really important to teach. It's yeah. really important. 
So I have a few other examples. I'm just going to hammer through them because I think I've uh, proven my point <laughs> in how we really need to expand our concept of literacy to these new technologies and how comics is genuinely a way in which you can engage kids within the classroom, within an educational setting, while also recognizing the, this larger expansion of technology and their and this expansion of literacy. I'm just going to throw out there two things. Um, I thought I w- just wanted to go into why literacy is really important for learning differences, right? Okay. Sort of learning uh, disabilities, learning differences. Just like a quick article from 2001 um, sort of talked about uh, how literacy for young adults with Down syndrome is like really important, even beyond compulsory education and more into the young adult years is like such a wonderful time for uh, literacy development for adults with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And also there was another article also from 2001 by Rogers and Miles using social stories and comic strip conversations to interpret social situations for an adolescent with Asperger syndrome. Um, I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you, Asperger isn't like an outdated term, right? It's not a diagnosis anymore. It's not a diagnosis anymore. Yeah. So it is outdated. Okay. That's what I thought. Okay. It's more, it's like a, it's, it's autism, right? Yeah, it's just autism with, like, different levels of, like, symptom severity. Okay. Sort of in this article, so we just established that um, Asperger syndrome is now outdated, so he was, he's an autistic um, young man at this point. Yeah. But it sort of talks about how um, it's a way to provide support to students who struggle to comprehend the quick exchange of information which occurs in a conversation. Yeah. So they talk about how comic strip conversations promote social understanding by incorporating simple figures and other symbols in a comic strip format. An educator can draw or assist a student who, who illustrates a social situation in order to facilitate understanding. And the sort of the subject of this paper, um, who was a 14-year-old boy, comic strips um, helped him interpret social situations. Um, he reported that he enjoyed using comic strip conversations and began to request their use from others at school and home. Um, so I thought that was just really oh, okay. positive and awesome. Yeah, yeah. And one last thing from 2012. So this is from an article titled... Can the use of web-based comic strip creation tools facilitate English learners' grammar and sentence writing? So this is a research paper on comic creation tools for adolescents in the classroom. Um, sort of the literature reviews found more publications that said participants uh, had positive attitudes and enjoyed activities. Again, enjoyment is like really key to learning, right? Right. So in this article, um, they used comic strip creation software in like computers to sort of use during in-class grammar activities and it received really positive impact real positive feedback from the participants and how uh, using computers to create this and being able to share um, helped uh, students learn English Um, so for students aged 14 to 18. Those are just ways in which comic books are being used in really positive ways and also ways in which new technology is um, being recognized. So do you have any questions for me? I don't think I, ha- I don't know if I have any questions. I-, I am interested in like, so, so when we talked, when you talked about incorporating like alternate forms of reading or like literacy, uh, and I thought that was interesting that the survey's examples were like 
Google searching. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And I, but I am, I, I am wondering about like, well, I guess this would be for teenagers and not so much for like kids, but th- things like using social media or reading fan fiction, if anything like talked about, like how those sorts of things fit in. Um, so let's move on to our conclusion segment. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's a great, that's a great co- question. All right. So we're now we're going to move on to our conclusion segment and I'm going to answer E's question. So are researchers looking at social media? Are researchers looking at fan fiction? Although I don't know where fan fiction is these days. I, I think I'm just going to say, I think the answer is no. I didn't see anything. A lot of social media research adolescence is sort of like literally the social aspect and not right. the literacy aspect. Okay. I so almost the papers that I found are just calls to expand what we consider literacy, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I do I'm just going to I think it's new. I think it's frankly pretty new. Like I I had articles right. from 2017, 2018, right? Sort of looking at how to expand these new technologies, how to um, reincorporate uh, why video games could be important and useful to kids. And okay, I think the conclusion of my segment is really saying like a call to action, right? A call to action to look at those statistics of the six hours a day that kids spend online, right? They're reading. Like there isn't that much online usage that doesn't involve some active reading there's text all over online right mm-hmm. yeah 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 and i think my call is always to try to incorporate comics and i think comics is actually a way of re-engaging like how can we start to use multimodality to like actually educate students and to use their semiotic minds because they're they're really deciphering like if you're talking about literacy as purely deciphering information that's happening mm-hmm. for 6 hours a day right yeah so trying to recognize how we can start to build upon that i think is sort of my conclusionary place right just a call to try to figure out how we can build on it. It's it's just new, E. <laughs> yeah, no, it's super new. Yeah. I mean, even going yeah. back to your segment, right? It, the genre itself is only not even 100 years old, right? Which is new. The genre and the idea of distinguishing <laughs> teenagers as their own age group. Yeah, yeah. And I think starting to realize, I mean, there. I didn't mention this, but I was like looking into how teenagers' brains literally think differently than adults, right? Like they literally right, yeah. use different parts of their brains to make conclusions and all these things. I, th- I just think that more research and more work needs to be done in a positive way. Because I think there's a lot of stuff on social media and talking about the internet as like really evil. <laughs> right. <Yes. laughs> and, uh, yeah. Like I think like I think there's a sort of a very, very dominant idea that we should not be using social media as much as we do, which is like fair in a certain sense. If you're talking about like the news and elections and and monopolies, right? And and the power that we're allowing these companies to have over our free speech, things like this. 
I think what the 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 angle of criticism that I feel like social media should take is obviously the one of monopolies of whose voices are being uplifted by algorithms and things like this. But I don't necessarily think it should be considered that teenagers need to drop their phone and to throw it into a lake and they should only be reading books because I don't think that's fair and not realistic. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I don't know that I have a conclusion for myself. Um You don't have to you don't have to dig yourself a hole and then get out of it. <laughs> cool. Okay, yeah, I was going to say I don't know. I just I I thought it'd be fun to talk about. So I wanted to talk about it. That's all. I know. I'm such yeah. a I'm honestly such a big fan of The Outsiders. I think it's so cool that she was so young sh- when she wrote it. Yeah, I think it's it like the most really cool. precocious thing. <laughs> cool great thank you so much so that was our conclusion segment and now we're gonna move on to letters to the editor um it's our regular segment where we revisit past topics and add new research and sometimes we actually read email you've sent us you can send us email letters at drawing a dialogue at gmail.com do you have anything for letters to the editor e nope okay cool (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love the conclusion in letters to the editor segment. It's just me talking to myself. I just wanted to mention we, me and E, were all both recently at the Toronto Comics Art Festival in May. TCAF. I was on a couple panels to talk about The Breakaways, my new graphic novel. You can order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. The first panel that I was on was uh, Queer YA. And then the second panel was queer kids comics right so i was on like i had this day where i spent all day talking about why it's really important for youth to have access to lgbtq stories right yeah it was awesome it's also um sort of thinking about trends um recently we have talked about this on drawing a dialogue especially in our uh trans memoir and school climate episode episode 17 um, sort of yeah. talking about how um, trans student rights are still something that we're fighting for a lot in schools. Yeah, yeah. And along with that comes changing attitudes around the queer stories, right? So I wrote an article. I just wanted to shout out. You can read an article on comicarted.com titled uh, Queer Subjects for All Ages. And why? just why is it really important? Uh, for children to have access to queer stories, right? So this article, I don't know necessarily that our listeners are going to need an article to tell them why queer subjects are really important to have (laughs) in schools um, because I'm guessing our listeners are already down, but it's really written for people who aren't sure, right? Who aren't quite sure if it's appropriate. It is, yes. to be fair. Uh, So if you have any colleagues or anyone you know who um, is sort of unsure of whether a book is appropriate for their classroom, um, you can send them over to comicarted.com. And for this article, I just sort of break down why it it is important. And so that's what I talked about on these TCAF panels. And it was super awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and sharing that article. Um, It was, I mean, I didn't, TCAF was fun. I'm sure your panels were great. I didn't get to go. <laughs> Thank you. What'd you do on TCAF? I sold things at my table and then yeah. I went to karaoke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Cartoonist traditions. Cartoonist traditions. Yeah. 
So thank you for the downtown boys for their song, A Wave of History. It's off their album, Full Communism. You can get it off their band camp. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you. You should go over to comicarted.com, which is where the podcast is hosted. It is Kathy's uh, comic art education website. Um, You can see the podcast itself at drawingadialogue.com. That's where we put our show notes, our citations, and whatnot. You can email us at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at ehetja, which is E-H-E-T-J-A. You can follow me at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. You can follow Drawing a Dialogue at, on Twitter at Draw a Dialogue. We don't have the I-N-G in the middle there. So what are you reading, E? Um, well, I'm on summer break now, which is nice. Um, so I wanted to shout out uh, two books I've actually read, which are in the same series. So Wolf Song and Raven Song by uh, T.J. Klune. They are queer werewolf books and they're wonderful very good they're so so good the third the third one in the series is coming out in september and i'm very excited (laughs) that's awesome they're great what are you reading kathy um so i wanted to shout out the people on my queer ya panel from tcaf i just read all their books i'm oh yeah yeah so i just finished bloom by uh kevin panetta and uh savannah ganucho mm-hmm. this uh, bloom was really fun really cute have you read it uh i haven't but i have it it's on my yes it's on my um, reading list for my master yeah it's just like a very sweet uh romance uh with teenagers is a very easy breezy and i really enjoyed it it's really a uh, beachy <laughs> it's like a beach town it's yeah really, cool yeah it's really like open and airy which i think is like such a lovely setting for romance then we have a uh, kiss number eight by colleen af venable and ellen t crenshaw um kiss number eight was truly awesome um, it was like about teen romance and like identity and like also family histories and especially uh, relationships with um, family religion and Catholicism in your um, community and being queer in that kind of community. Just a really wonderful story. And, you know, hey, shout out to the YA genre that Eve was talking about, about how it's more realistic no, for like having a lot of problems and being really dramatic. This one is really dramatic. So uh, oh, Kiss cool. Number 8, <laughs> also wonderful. And then we have Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me uh, by Mariko Woo! Tamaki and Rosemary Valero O'Connell. Really beautiful um, story about friendship and some romance in there. Really lovely. And then I was on a panel with all those guys. So I was on a panel with six people because all those books have two uh, creators and mine is just <laughs> little me. Um, <laughs> I had a colorist. Kevin Chap was my colorist, but I guess colorists don't get right. to be on panels. Lots of love to Kevin. Uh, they are totally fine with it. <laughs> just <letting laughs> you know. I'm not like being dismissive of their contributions. My book is amazing because it was colored by Kevin. And then I wanted to like a uh, sort of a final shout out to check please by ngozi ukazu i wouldn't it it could be ya if you want it to be there's a lot of swears um but if you're chill with that um (laughs) 
I was like very unexpected with how many swears are in this book, actually. But I thought it was really, really sweet. It's also free online. It's a webcomic, so you can just go read that. You don't need the book. But all those are from First Second, my publisher. They sent them to me for free. Thank you very much. <laughs> so um, goodbye. Uh, thank you for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Eremus Jackson. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. <laughs>